Welcome to Two Guys, One Book, where two friends tackle their reading list one book at a time. Welcome again to Two Guys, One Book. This is Brian. This is Tim. And today we are reading the movie go or we read mm-hmm. the movie goer by Walker Percy, and this is a Tim pick. So Tim, why did you pick this book? Other than Ryan Holiday told you to. Right. <laughs> so Ryan Holiday is, uh, for those who don't know, a pretty well-read person and internet personality, mm-hmm. writer person. So um, he recommended it, and he's lived like in New Orleans, I think, which is where this book is placed. Yeah. So he had some kind of connection to it. And I read some about the premise. It's sort of like an existentialist book, and he's having this kind of crisis, and... Um, it just sounded interesting and something different. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much why I picked it. Um, so what were you, did you have any expectations or anything going into it? It's like, hmm. just come what may. Yeah, I was hoping for something kind of unique and maybe a little deep or along those lines. But mm. I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed on the whole. There were definitely parts that I liked and we'll go into that, but... My first impression was a little disappointment. What did you think? I agree. It's a little disappointing. Uh, I think it's interesting that it's called The Movie Goer when he goes to the movies like twice. I know. There could have been so (laughs) many. That was like my biggest... Because, okay, that's another big reason I picked that is because I love movies, you love movies, and I thought that would be like a big recurring theme. And it kind of pops up here and there, but like on the whole, it's rarely a part of this so yeah yeah but no I agree there was definitely parts I liked um, you know I felt I it was an interesting book it kept my interest for the most part um, wondered at times where it was going uh, and then we found out you know that it wasn't really going much of anywhere in my opinion um, but do you want to give a synopsis of like a brief rundown of the book and what happens and all that Sure. Stuff? It's funny you say it doesn't really go anywhere. I think that's kind of almost the point. It's like... <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Is yeah. that being an existential book, it's not really about story or what's going on or whatnot. It's just... Yeah. I think there was something in like the epilogue that summed it up pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main character is Binks mm-hmm. or Jack. Yeah, I, I mean, kind of, Jack Bowling's, or, yeah. but, like, they call Binks him Binks. informal yeah. name. Yeah, I like so, that. So, some critic or uh, person who read the book summed it up as, um, though Binks's daily activities of making money in the stock market, sexually pursuing a series of secretaries, and movie-going might seem shallow and avoidant, his inner life is anything but. Internally, he observes and interprets life according to The Search a complex philosophical stance of how to live in a world where the traditional values of religious faith and southern stoicism are crumbling. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of captures the main themes. As far as plot, I mean, it's just about, yeah, like this guy who <laughs> sleeps with his secretaries and goes and see, sees movies. Does he sleep with his secretaries? I think it's implied. I guess so. It's never explicitly said. It's a little creepy. Like, he hires these, like, Mm -hmm. women, and then he just... I mean, it is... This is set in the 50s, the 1950s. Is it the 50s? I don't think it specifically says, but, like, the late 50s, right? Yeah. Because he's a Korean War vet. Yeah. So I think that was early 50s. Okay. So this would have been after that. But you read some of that stuff about, like, him taking his secretaries out on dates and you're like maybe it was just the time like that was socially mm-hmm. acceptable but a lot of the stuff he's doing is like kind of harassment he kind of comes off as unlikable throughout this I really thought. yeah in a lot got, of instances okay just a little did you find him as a likable character um i thought about that as i was reading and i think my view of him evolved throughout the book and i i would say yes at first i do not particularly like him mm-hmm. But then I, but then when he was talking about how he felt and his views on life and stuff and his search for trying to find purpose in the, in the world and whatnot, I, I decided to give him a break, like about halfway through. And I'm like, okay. So like, I, cause I didn't know like what we're, I didn't know what we were supposed to think about this guy. So at first not liking him halfway through, I'm like, okay, I'll give him a, the benefit of the doubt. And then he didn't really do anything to piss me off after that. So I was like, oh, I'm like, okay. So I was kind of like, 
because like I didn't know are we supposed to think that he has is he depressed is he does he have PTSD from the Korean War I mean like did you like try to like hash out his mental state throughout the book at all yeah I think being a veteran and having like a an injury where he was shot like in the Mm -hmm. shoulder that definitely affects his psyche and his outlook or his philosophy but just to give more context this was somewhat autobiographical like um and I I do like that genre I feel like fiction mixed with the author's real experiences gives it a little more depth Mm -hmm. or something sure um so like his own father had committed suicide and uh may have had like depression or different things and his mother had uh died in a car crash and there were car crashes in this book Mm -hmm. that had um significant sort of there were significant uh moments in the book so um yeah i think those elements were kind of important Mm -hmm. but as a character he felt like holding caulfield and catcher in the rye which you don't like that book i do not no didn't you see the parallels between him and i did yes, I very much saw the parallels between this and Catcher in the Rye, um, but I did not care for Catcher in the Rye um, because I don't know. I uh, to me, Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield seemed like a whiny kid. In this one, I guess I could sympathize with him because he's an adult. He's been through the Korean War, and he just kind of wants to figure out as an adult, like he's 29 going on 30, like what is his path in life? I guess I have a little more sympathy or connection with that than I do with a whiny kid that doesn't want to grow up. Yeah, but for me, I think that's what makes it worse is because like Holden's a teenager, so he has that teenage angst and okay. whatever. So that he gets a pass for being going bit. through that. Okay, yeah. okay. This guy's like whiny, but he's an adult. And like, he's always like, he doesn't use the word phony to call other people, but he sort of like judges people and assumes he knows kind of what they're thinking and they're all kind of fake and everybody's kind of dead inside. He's just projecting a little bit. Right, yes. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say he's whiny. I don't know. I just feel like he he is a little bit... He suffers from um, self, uh, self-pity. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of like, woe is me. There's... Like all these people in the world that just go through their da- daily lives, and I, I did like his talk of like everydayness or like the malaise. Mm-hmm. How he would say like if something is boring or routine, it's the malaise has creeped in and, and is affecting you know his current situation or ha- from keeping him from having fun or whatever. I did like that, but uh, but I don't know. I didn't. Yes, I. I mean, I didn't think he was that whiny. Just. Yeah, the malaise is a good point. Like he he does mention that a lot. He he felt like the character in the stranger, the main character, just that sense of alienation he had or isolation, sort of like a distance between him and the real world. Like he was just in his mind so much, like sort of daydreaming or uh, getting caught up in these thoughts. Yeah, and I can definitely see. You know, it's definitely existential novel, and I think maybe that's why I liked it a little bit more than Catcher in the Rye. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I need to reread Catching the Rye. So. <laughs> Give it another chance, yeah. Brian. Um, but he had tuberculosis in real life. Uh, this okay. the, the author, right? And then he started reading all these existential authors. I just read like a short bio on him, right? So I think. And so yeah, the author Walker Percy was a doctor, mm-hmm. and then he got tuberculosis and he couldn't practice anymore or something with that. And so then he yeah read more and then he became a writer then instead. Um, yeah, so I will go over a little bit more what happens. I mean, he, Binks, is the main character, is a stock broker in, in New Orleans. And, yes, he, he goes out on the town with his secretaries, and he got a new one. Well, and, and in the book, his dad meets his mom because his dad's a doctor, his mom's the nurse that came to work at the doctor's office. So, like, I can sympathize that, like, that's just kind of his mentality is like, oh, you just... If you're not married, you know, and if you're single and you're working, you just find somebody at your job, kind of. But anyway, but then he also has this great aunt, Aunt Emily, right? And her, so it's his great aunt, and then she married this guy that had 
a daughter, Kate, right? Because it started, I mean, that distinction is important that his great aunt had the stepdaughter, Kate, because technically he and Kate would be cousins, mm -hmm. but not blood cousins. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, he and Kate end up together. Uh, Kate is a little more, um, I guess, like bipolar or de more depressed, manic depressive or something. Uh, she suffered a car accident in the past before the book and they talk about it like how it affected her in the book and so Binks goes to work he goes out with his secretary before he and Kate become romantically involved but then like yeah I mean I'm, I'm just struggling to kind of keep the, 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 the things that happen in order I mean essentially his boss then tells him to go to Chicago and then Oh, he goes out. He goes out to the Gulf Coast with his secretary. Then he goes to his his mom and stepdad's like dock boat, dock house or something. And they happen to be there. And so he spends some time with his mom and stepdad and all his step siblings, which I thought was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Seeing him as the older sibling with the step siblings, and then he goes back to town and. What, then he goes to Chicago and then Kate joins him to Chicago and then that's on the train ride to Chicago they become more romantically involved but then his great aunt Emily didn't know where Kate was because he didn't tell her where that she was that he was taking her to Chicago so they get to Chicago and turn around and come right back to New Orleans mm -hmm. after Mardi Gras and then he's basically trying to figure out where he's gonna go next in life Aunt Emily is kind of mad with him but then he and Kate were are like well, I mean, like, he proposed to her earlier, and she's like, do you mean it? He's like, yes, and then they basically get together, right? Yeah. I mean, was there anything I missed in that? That sums it up, but just as a story, it doesn't sound that exciting. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you lay it out like that. I know. Because most of the book takes place in his head. It's his thoughts mm -hmm. and his sort of musings. But I didn't think the philosophical angle of this was maybe as deep as it meant to be. Because he, he kept talking about, like, the search, this idea of just like always searching and uh, yeah, fighting the everydayness of life and sort of living in wonder and things like that. Mm -hmm. But like, what does that really mean? And you know, it seemed like he was maybe not as deep as he thought he was. <laughs> right. He was. He was trying. I mean, I feel like he was trying to be deep, but like with no substance, mm -hmm. like no actual solution. I guess at the very end, he and Kate end up together. Uh, his his one stepbrother that was in a real wheelchair, Lonnie. I kind of liked their relationship. Yeah. Binks and Lonnie had a good relationship. They got they had a, like inside jokes, and they both really liked movies. And they went to a drive-in movie together. He and his, Lonnie and the rest of his step siblings. So I kind of like that moment. But then Lonnie eventually dies. But then so Binks has to look after his stepkids just for the day, and he sends Kate on a mission to go pick up some paperwork or something in a building downtown and so that last little bit he he like reassures kate that everything's gonna be fine just go to this building meet with mr so-and-so and come on back you just get what he gives you and come on back and she's like what if i can't find him then just come on back so it shows i think at the end it shows how much he cares for kate because he's he's like the steady one the rock of the relationship he is there to help kate like kate is always like I said, she's like a manic depressive, but when she's with him, she feels okay. Yeah. So and then then he's all so he sent he's consoling her, sending her off to do this thing, and then he's also watching his step siblings. So I think at the end we do see him kind of. I don't know if accept is the right word, but like, he finds kind of his niche in life with Kate and looking after her, and now with his step siblings a little. Maybe he's gonna be more involved with their life. It, I mean, that's exactly where the book ends, so we don't really know. But So I feel like, in an indirect way, he kind of finds his way. But it's not like a roadmap for everyone to follow. It's just, and, but, like, but at the end of the day, that's, that's a sin. It's everyone's own individual journey. And yeah, so I guess I kind of like that. I mean, it's like he sort of settles for this pretty ordinary life after this nine tenths of the book being about you know being on the search for some you know crazy. yes he did he did have a holier than thou approach of yeah. like 
you know, these people are, are just going through everydayness. They have no idea what they're blind to the, the, the search and all this stuff and really like, you know, look for the meaning in life and, and these other people are missing out. But in the end, you're right. He kind of just does seem to like settle in just like anybody else. But at the end of the day, isn't that what life is too? Like you, you, you search for what makes me meaning in your life and whatever that is, that's great. But it can be very similar to what 98% of the population do. Yeah. I think the big existentialist theme is that whatever you choose as meaningful in your life is the most important thing. And he did end up choosing this path and I think he was happy about it. But the whole dynamic with Kate, I found a little disturbing. Just the fact that she was like manic depressive and on drugs and stuff. And he had taken her to like Chicago and her whole family was wondering where she was because she just had like a near suicide attempt or something. So like he comes off as kind of creepy in that context. I yes, think. I agree. Yeah, it's it it doesn't necessarily show him in the best light, but I mean it just yeah it it does seem it does seem weird. I mean they have a unique kind of bond, so they do. It's hard. I don't know if we can judge like objectively, but right. I mean the fact that they're step cousins. Not, you know, full-blooded cousins yeah. makes... I mean, I think is a key point. Because, like, I don't know. But maybe it was the late 50s and no one really but cared. It, yeah, <laughs> it is the South. But it's just her mental state was the issue, like, you know. Right. And he seemed to... to Yeah, like... Yeah, what were, what were the drugs she was on? Did they explicitly say? I don't think. Like, they just talked about her pills, right? Yeah. And he was always one that he had her pills. Like he would always have them handy and let her let her have them, whether that was good or bad and indifferent. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. So a general thing that I liked about this was his relationship dynamic with different characters because it did vary a lot from character to character. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned with Lonnie, uh, his younger brother in the wheelchair, they kind of had a special connection. Yeah. And he even said, like, I wouldn't mind trading places with Lonnie. Like it seems like a peaceful life. It's just kind of like. It's hard to relate to, but <laughs> yeah, it does seem a, a little, strange outlook. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, and then like with his mom, his mom wouldn't really open up or be able to talk to her because they had another brother who drowned, mm-hmm. and so she just kind of and then hit the dad had like committed suicide or had depression and things. So like she was just trying to keep things sort of simple. I think he didn't want to go too deep. And then he had a special relationship with his aunt. They had like an intellectual bond and would talk about philosophy and things. So with each character, he had sort of a special connection that was different from the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that that is, I think, a, a good part of the book as well, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else did you like or dislike? Ooh, well, I, I guess I do, did kind of dislike the whole he and Kate thing. I mean, it ultimately ended up like, it seemed to be okay at the end, but like, it just felt like, I don't know what I expect with these books, because these books, I don't even know what I mean by that, but like, I guess more, not really plot driven, but more of like, internal monologue of a character driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, like we said, Catcher in the Rye, there's also Rabbit Run by John Updike is another one I read where... We, you know, we follow this character and things happen, but nothing really crazy or earth, earth shattering. But we just kind of follow this person's train of thought. And I mean, I just don't know if I really like those books. I think they're well written. Do you like, I mean, so like, what do you, when it comes to a, a novel, a work of fiction, what really catches your interest that makes you like a not a novel i guess i have mixed feelings like on this i like the style i sort of relate to it i feel like i'm in my head a lot mm. so i'm sort of maybe sympathize with their character um but at the same time in a book you also kind of want to see things happen and i like more of a story more of a plot to things so if they can strike that balance like i thought fear and loathing in las vegas was a good balance because he had his own thoughts and ideas but then uh, not that the plot was super structured or clear, but there was enough of a story to keep things moving along mm-hmm. and entertaining. 
I, that's a good that's a good um, parallel because I think you're right that that book there was a, there's a lot of stuff happening that was entertaining but yet we still got the main character's point of view and then I would contrast that with another book we read Blood Meridian mm-hmm. where it was all just stuff happening mm-hmm. and we were following the kid right in that book but like we never knew what the kid was thinking yeah. or any character was really thinking it was all event events really that was like too much in the other direction. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. I agree. So and so, getting back to the movie goer, I, I mean, I I I feel like it was well written. I liked it, but yeah, I mean, it just, I just wondered where it was going at times. It like just missed the mark a little bit yeah. for me. Like there is in the last third, sort of you, I tuned out a tiny bit just because it would go through some details that weren't especially interesting, weren't especially profound. So, yeah, it dragged a tiny bit. For a, for a short book, it dragged a little bit. Yeah, no. yeah, that's so. true. It is relatively short, and so it is still a quick, quick read, but, yeah, it, it, yeah, it doesn't maintain that interest all throughout. But I thought Kate was a good character overall and a good contrast to him because she did have more of this, like, outer manic... Uh, display of her issues and his was more inward right and um i know we usually do quotes at the end but <laughs> i like to read one sure because she talked about like suicide mm. and how she actually saw that option as like a positive thing in her life and that's a very like philosophical thing like the only real question is suicide I don't know who said that, but I think the guy who Cam- wrote The Stranger... Or Camus. Or Camus. Yeah, yeah, Albert yeah, Camus, Camus said that about in The Myth of Sisyphus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she says, um, They all think any minute I'm going to commit suicide. What a joke. The truth, of course, is the exact opposite. Suicide is the only thing that keeps me alive. Whenever everything else fails, all I have to do is consider suicide, and in two seconds I'm as cheerful as a nitwit. But if I could not kill myself, uh, then I would. I can do without... Nempudal or murder mysteries, but not without suicide. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good quote. Yeah, that is, that is very similar to. I mean, I guess well, not similar, but like, you're right. Like that's always for her. I think she's looking at it like a way out. Mm-hmm. Like if things ever do get so bad, there's always suicide to get out. You know, like so. You know, like I don't. I don't. I don't think that's a good outlook on life for everybody (laughs) you know i wouldn't i don't think you know psychiatrists in in offices across the country are are you know using that strategy with their clients but um it's a little extreme yeah she's not in the best state mentally (laughs) it's just it's Mm -hmm. it's interesting to hear that philosophical idea conceptualized in this character right but yeah, one troubling scene with her is when she talks about her husband dying in a car crash. Yeah, right. And then she talks about being, like, that the happiest day of her life. And she just goes and, like, you like, know. Like, she didn't even do, like, after the car crash. I mean, I get it. It was the 50s. There were no cell phones or whatever. But anyway, car crash happens. Like, he's dead. She gets rushed to the hospital, treated, released. And she just, like, takes the bus home. Yeah. Like, doesn't call anybody. Doesn't really do anything like check into the local police or whatnot she just kind of takes a bus ride home and be like oh oh didn't she just like stay in a bed and breakfast too or like read the paper or something it talks about her just like right very normal things and going about her life now i mean granted no one really knows how they are going to react to trauma so you know she's just going through the motions doing the routine things which is i guess is understandable but she was saying it was like a happy part of her life yeah because it was like maybe she was free or something or Mm -hmm. who knows why they don't really explain no yeah yeah, because kate's not the main character right yeah but no i agree kate was something that held my interest in the book i just didn't know if like like you said there binks and kate's dynamic was for me it was a little like unnecessary like all right i can't think of the word i want to use to describe it like you know like halfway to two-thirds of the way in the book you're like okay they're gonna end up together right and i was like you so you could see it coming it wasn't much of a surprise but yet it just kind of seemed like well that's just how all books like this would be um I but I think as a character, she just brought more to the table oh, than yeah. like the other 
female characters like the secretaries oh, yeah. just seem sort of one dimensional right. right. and um, yeah so I mean discussing mental illness in like a 50s book is a little bit of an outlier in general that's a good point yeah. that I think this book was written in 61 or 62 okay um, but you're right, it probably took place, you know, late 50s. But, yeah, for to, to have characters battling with, you know, depression or manic depression or whatever, it would be, I guess, a little more uh, cutting edge back then. Yeah. And being set in the 50s or late 50s or whenever, uh, there are moments that feel maybe <laughs> a little racist or sexist. Yeah, and right? you, we can't tell if, like, that was the intention or if that's just, like, the time period politically incorrect like how people talked right that's a good point that's yeah. a good point because you you just don't know if if the author knew any better really to be perfectly honest if that's just how things were and that's how he wrote them down in the book right about you know African Americans sitting in the back of the bus or about when Binks was on the bus ride home from Chicago how I forget the exact wording. He wanted. He went. He went to talk to another guy just traveling by himself, and he talked about how they had to make sure they were both heterosexuals <laughs> or something. That was a little weird. That was a funny line. It was like, you can't just. Uh, one guy was reading a book on the train, and he's like, you can't just go up uh, to another guy and have it be normal these days and ask him what he's reading or something because I don't think you're a homosexual. Right. Yeah. So like. like all right. I mean, is that just the sign of the times, or was that like? Did, I mean, I I kind of don't think Walker Percy put that in there to show, that, but the, but I mean, I think I don't think Walker Percy knew any better. Right, is what I'm saying. Is that I don't think he was suddenly he was some progressive, but wanted to show that Binks the character was a little more backwards. But no, it was just the sign of the times. I think so. Yeah. What about New Orleans? This book took place in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Or the surrounding area, but I felt like it could have taken place anywhere, really. I mean, he talks about going to the Gulf Coast and like the different uh, what are they? Not counties, but um, different parishes. Feliciana Parish or whatever was where a lot of this took place. But like, I mean, I think the setting was kind of important. I think maybe not so much New Orleans specifically. Mm-hmm. He didn't talk about the local culture as much but just being set in the south in general um because it's like religious but they're not really religious like him or most of the other main characters and then um yeah his contrast between going to the north and uh or seeing people from the north or the midwest in visiting the south um so just there's a bit of a the cultural element to it yeah and like southern men are supposed to treat women well but he kind of has these flings so i feel like it, it comes through a bit Yes, that's a good point. Being sent in the South is is essential to the book, yes. But New Orleans itself, I mean, I guess they kind of talked about Mar- Mardi Gras and whatnot, but when I think about a book set in New Orleans, I think about Confederacy of Dunces. Like, that one I felt like, you know, he talked about the streets and the streetcar and the and the, the nature of the of each street had a character like a different characteristic or whatever and the houses and whatnot so I mean I guess that's not an apples to apples comparison because they're different books but I don't know speaking of that book mm-hmm. something in- interesting uh, the author Walker Percy it said this I think on Wikipedia so maybe <laughs> it'll have to be confirmed elsewhere uh-huh. but he helped get a confederacy of dunces published oh. like 10 years after uh, that guy's death because mm-hmm. he committed suicide too right. that book wasn't and then it went on to win all these awards mm-hmm. yeah yeah so speaking of awards the, the moviegoer yeah won like book of the year or something like that it right? won something like prestigious name yes I forget the exact award but I think something right and I didn't know this until I looked it up after I read finished reading moviegoer one of the books that it beat out was catch 22 Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I'm a little salty about that. That's but one of your favorites. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. But um, I just found that interesting. And I read a little bit online about how it was kind of a surprise at the time in 62 when the movie goer won Book of the Year or whatever. Um, and it was kind of like de- a de- cause for debate amongst, you know, the elite book critics or whatever. But, you know, I mean, I 
Yeah. So. Yeah. Cool. It seems like I had hardly heard anything about this until mm -hmm. I stumbled upon it online, mm -hmm. people talking about it. So, like, it's, it is strange how it's hardly known. In, like, academia, you don't hear people in schools really reading this, do you? That's, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think there are so many other ones that definitely overshadow this one. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, being a southern existentialist book, <laughs> it sort of is a unique genre, mm -hmm. a unique niche. Yeah. 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 I, like, I appreciate it more after reading it, not as much during, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. and then just soaking it in as a whole, like, stepping back and mm -hmm. sort of appreciating appreciating all the pieces put together right. even though it felt like a, a bit of a slog right. at times and I think that's what this podcast has helped me do is in the past I would read a book finish it check it off my list and move on but discussing it with you has helped me appreciate characters and dialogue and and you know exposition about what characters are thinking and whatnot so it, it has helped me like you said digest the book little more after I'm reading it after I'm done reading it and to appreciate it a little bit more yeah it helps like soak it in yeah. more I think yeah process everything yeah was there anything in particular you did not like um just the fact that in general he felt a little unlikable at times mm -hmm. or not as profound as he wanted to seem mm -hmm. just those two critiques I think sure yeah I agree I think those are valid because I mean he doesn't I mean, at one time he does like reference the Danish philosopher. Uh, Did he catch that? Like, and and that's got to be Kierkegaard, because I mean that's what Walker Percy read a lot too. So, right. I mean, I I there was a little hint to that, but yeah, nothing explicit. And... What was the Kierkegaard quote in the first page? Do you have first it? page? Yeah, it was like. See? What, you don't have this on your Kindle? I, I mean, I could pull it up, but you have the hard copy. <laughs> that I do. Um, oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the specific character of despair is precisely this. It is unaware of being despair. I like that quote. That is a good one. Yep. So Here what does it mean in this context? It's like he's living in despair without realizing it? Is that possible? Or... Or he feels that everyone else, because his whole thing was that everyone else is clueless, right? Yeah, but the quote is saying without realizing it. So maybe he's projecting, like how Holden Caulfield called everybody else a phony when really his life was kind of like a phony. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of like, you know, he goes on and on, talks a big talk about like the search and this like living in wonder, mm -hmm. but really he's just kind of drifting. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. To I, I don't know. I mean, I, I take this as it is the specific character of despair is precisely this. It is unaware of being despair. So I would view that as people are in despair without realizing it. Okay. So the main character, Binks, his eyes are clear to the world. Where and he sees everyone else is in despair, mm -hmm. and they don't realize it. Here am I, Binks, and again this is holier than thou approach. Yeah. Here am I, Binks. I'm aware of what's going on. I'm trying to accomplish the search, and everyone else is clueless to that. They're the ones in despair. I am working on my despair. But then he ends up like everybody else. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. But I think like that reminds me of A Clockwork Orange. Have you ever read that? I don't want to spoil it. I mean, like, part of reading Clockwork Orange is just to go along for the ride. Because mm -hmm. it's very unique. They have, he has made made up words, some words, like, derived from Russian equivalent of them or whatnot. But, um, but ultimately, it's about going through young adulthood, trying to find who you are and your place in the world. And he does that through hyper-violence. But at the end... The main character wants to set. Oh, am I ruining this book for you? <laughs> Spoilers. I mean, I read it, so we're not going to do it for the podcast. But you should. I mean, it. But like I said, part of the the beauty of the book is go, just going along for the ride. Yeah. How it ends is how it ends.
but but we can t- talk more. I want to read that book. I mean, all right. I mean, we we can do a special episode about Clockwork Orange. I would love that. I think I tried watching the Kubrick movie, and yeah. I was just like, this is kind of messed up. Yeah, <laughs> it's messed up. But actually, surprisingly, the movie is really pretty true to the book. Yeah, which is kind of messed up in itself. But I mean. Yeah, the book is... Free. You need, like, a dictionary for all the slang and you stuff. You do. <laughs> and and some versions of the book do have a dictionary in the back, at least the older version I re- first read. Well, the moviegoer is pretty simple. Uh, yes, the moviegoer is, is very simple. Yeah. Why don't... Do you want to... Um, you want to do favorite parts? Is that what you want to do? Favorite quotes. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Sorry. Gosh. What? Favorite parts, favorite quotes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't. I don't know if I had. I didn't think, like, I didn't think I had very many favorite quotes. But then I started going through them, and I guess I do. Mm-hmm. But they're very simple stuff. Um, and like this is this is a part in the beginning when I, when I thought like, oh, this is why it's called the moviegoer, because he talks about you know, he says weekends I often spend on the Gulf Coast, our neighborhood theater in Gentilly has permanent le- lettering on the front. Of the marquee reading where happiness costs so little, um, blah 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 blah, and he says, "Oh, the fact is, I am quite happy in a movie, even a bad movie." He goes on later in the paragraph. He says, "What I remember is the time John Wayne killed three men with a carbine as he was falling to the dusty street in stagecoach, and the time the kitten found Orson Welles in the doorway in the Third Man." Come on, I had that as my first quote. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. But like, can I read the whole thing? That's oh, you want to read quote. the whole thing? Yeah. Read the whole thing. Tim. Okay. Take it away. <laughs> It's because the, the John Wayne part is better having read the first part. Okay. You know what I mean? All right, all right, all right. And this, okay, I agree with you. It leads. It's a little misleading. Yes, because cause this is feels... this is page seven. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're like, oh, good. He's gonna talk about movies because we'll reference all these old movies. But all right, go ahead, Tim. Read the whole paragraph. Yeah, I was excited. And yeah. So he said, <laughs> okay. The fact is, I am quite happy in a movie, even a bad movie. Other people, so I have read, treasure memorable moments in their lives. The time one climbed the Parthenon at sunrise. The summer night one met a lonely girl in Central Park and achieved with her a sweet and natural relationship, as they say in books. I too once met a girl in Central Park, but it is not much to remember. What I remember is the time John Wayne killed three men with a carbine as he was falling to the dusty street in stagecoach, and the time the kitten found Orson Welles in the doorway in The Third Man. Yeah, okay. The whole paragraph is good. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, blah, blah, blah. I did. I was like, no, right. That's my favorite part. Really? That's your favorite quote? This, it might be. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it totally gives you the, the presumption that he's going to talk about movies throughout the book, and he does not. Yeah. That is, he talks about those two characters, or two, those two actors in those two movies, he, and he sees William Holden on the streets of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. He talks about some references to Ava Gardner this, and... And some other actors I didn't even know. I liked when he would just throw a reference here or there. Like, compare a person to a character. Or he would say, like, to her I kept a Gregory Peck Peck sort of distance, you know? Right. Yes, I like that, but could have been more. It could have been a lot more. Could have been more. Yeah. The title should have not been the movie goer. (laughs) Oh, right? (laughs) All right. With that being said, I agree. What would the title be, then? The holier than thou, <laughs> wanderer. The search. Yeah, the search. It can't be the search, right? Because that's too much like um, the searchers or something. Or um, oh shoot, the Camus book you just mentioned. Oh, earlier. the stranger. The stranger. Yeah. The stranger, the search. I guess. This feels good. like the stranger is set in the south a little bit. <laughs> yeah, except he doesn't get executed yeah. at the end. Spoilers. Know. He doesn't kill anybody either. Can I read one more on the search? Oh, absolutely. So just to connect to that, uh, mm-hmm. he says. The search is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk in the everydayness of his own life. This morning, for example, I felt as if I had come to myself on a strange island. And what does a, such a castaway do? Why, he pokes around the neighborhood and he doesn't miss a trick. Yep. So I like the idea of seeing your familiar surroundings in, with different eyes. Mm-hmm. But uh, he starts off with this idea of the search and then doesn't follow up on it that much. Yeah, yeah I like that quote too. Another one I like is, um, I mean, shortly after your quote there about him explaining the search, he does go on and um, 
rhetorically ask himself, what do you seek, God? You ask with a smile. I hesitate to answer, since all other Americans have settled the matter for themselves, and to give such an answer would amount to setting myself a goal which everyone else has reached, and therefore raising a question in which no one has the slightest interest. Who wants to be dead last among 180 million Americans? For, as everyone knows, the polls report that 98% of Americans believe in God, and the remaining 2% are atheists and agnostics, which leaves not a single percentage point for a seeker. For myself, I enjoy answering polls as much as anyone and take pleasure in giving intelligent replies to all questions. Truthfully, it is the fear of exposing my own ignorance with which constrains me from mentioning the object of my search. For, to begin with, I cannot even answer this. The simplest and most basic of all questions. Am I in my search a hundred miles ahead of my fellow Americans or a hundred miles behind them? That is to say, have 98% of Americans already found what I seek, or are they so sunk in everydayness that not even the possibility of a search has occurred to them? I like that passage a lot. Yes, that is, that, I mean, I think that boils this book down. I mean, what, what you said about the search and then continuing on to this is that I think, I think he is kind of stuck in that time period as well where it was kind of a foregone conclusion that, like you said, 98% of Americans, you know, have a religion, and 2% are immediately considered atheist agnostics or just crazy. So, I think I think he, he is in a period of time where there isn't much, you know, stress on independent thought and kind of, you know, your own spirituality and, and how that can evolve over time or change or is different for each individual you know and I think that I think that's an important key of this book too definitely I mean the whole idea of existentialism is mm-hmm. to find your own meaning right and to have religion be such a traditional role of deciding that for you and now he's kind of saying you see you're a seeker and you find that meaning on your own mm-hmm. so at one point he was talking about his time in college and he says sort of in passing uh, I had spent the four years propped up on the front porch of the fraternity house bemused and dreaming watching the sun shine through the Spanish moss lost in the mystery of finding myself alive at such a time and place yeah I think that's it's a simple sentence but kind of captures how he's always kind of in his head (laughs) right right and so in the book he's 29 going on 30 but then at that point he was in college right so we know that you know this has been stewing within him for many years and just quickly to sum up his uh everyday life he says i spend my entire time working making money going to movies and seeking the company of women <laughs> so <laughs> sort of a, yeah you know for being an existentialist kind of guy he's rather materialistic and and um what is that is it epicurean is our epicurus ones that deal with pleasure kind of indulgent no who are yeah. the pleasure seekers yeah, that's epicurean yeah i think okay. so yeah but i mean that's you can uh reconcile that i think like he chose this lifestyle so you can argue that that's existentialist themed He's just following his desires. He talks about going to the local movie theater and how he, he's gotten to know the, the owner and the ticket lady and all that stuff. And um, so he elaborates a, uh, a little bit about that. I mean, he basically says, like, he, he doesn't make small talk with the um, owner and the ticket person just to make small talk. He does it to connect with them, actually. Because he says, my mother often told me to be un- unselfish. But I have become suspicious of the advice. No, I do it for my own selfish reasons. If I did not talk to the theater owner or the ticket seller, I should be lost, cut loose, metaphysically speaking. I should be seeing one copy of a film which might be shown anywhere and at any time. There is a danger of slipping clean out of space and time. It is possible to, be, to become a ghost and not know whether one is in downtown Lowe's in Denver or suburban Bijou in Jacksonville. So it was with me. So like even the small talk he makes with the, the people at the theater, he does it for his own selfish reasons of, of acknowledging where he is in the world and what in space and time so he doesn't like, I don't know, 
yeah. slip, slip out of it. Which I think might, for me at least, when I go to the movies, I like the fact that I just sit in a dark room and watch a story. You know, I don't care where the theater is. And Binks in the book seems to have the opposite uh, attachment. He likes the theater he's at and, and actually going to and talking to the people at the theater and whatnot. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's enjoyable to get caught up in movies. I think that's what you and I like about it. Mm-hmm. But for him, maybe it helps him feel a little grounded to have a connection to the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said about this being set in New Orleans and that not coming up much, yeah. uh, that's sort of why location isn't always an important thing in this book because he is in his mind so much. Right, yeah. right. Which I guess that's a good point, is that the setting in New Orleans isn't that big a deal because ultimately we're along for the ride in his subconscious. Um, I have a quote from his aunt talking to him. Mm. I felt like she was a really well-spoken character in the book and gave right. some good advice. Had yeah, some good... earlier in the book. Yeah. But like when, when after he comes back from taking Kate to Chicago... Mm-hmm. She kind of scolds him, and it's kind of like... Well, he deserved it, though. I guess so, but, like, she goes on this rant about, like, we're better than some people, oh, or, yeah. or something like that. It got a little, uh, like, elitist, or yeah, weird, yeah, yeah, classist, it did. or something. I mean, it was the 50s, so like That's this. true. But, okay, she tells him, um, You have too good a mind to throw away. I don't quite know what we're doing on this insignificant cinder spinning away in a dark corner of the universe. That is a secret which the high gods have not confided in me. Yet one thing I believe, and I believe it with every fiber of my being, a man must live by his lights and do what little he can and do it as best he can. In this world, goodness is destined to be defeated, but a man must go down fighting. That is the victory. To do anything less is to be less than a man. Mm. That's a good quote. Yeah, that is. And then he kind of goes on to be like, I agree with her, though I don't really know what she means. <laughs> like, that's a great <laughs> This is uh, Kate talking about, in the middle of the book, about going to see her psychologist or therapist or somebody. Um, they don't really clarify who she goes to see, just Merle. But then she says, this is a quote I like. Have you noticed that only in time of illness or disaster or death are people real? I remember at the time of the wreck, people were so kind and helpful and solid. Everyone pretended that our lives until that moment had been every bit as real as the moment itself and that the future must be real too. When the truth was that our reality had been purchased only by Lyle's death, in another hour or so, we had all faded out again and gone our dim ways. I like that a lot. Yeah, she's talking about the, her, the car accident she was in. Lyle was her fiancé who died. And and I think that's so spot on in that in moments of tragedy and, like she says, illness or disaster or death, that's the only time people are real. And that, that gives, like, because... You acknowledge other people's su- yeah. To acknowledge other people's suffering is to acknowledge they exist, and that their life matters. And so many times, I think we get caught up that. I mean, everyone's in their own world, and that's understandable. But I think we get caught up in what Banks is talking about—the everydayness that we don't acknowledge the humanity in the people around us in everyday life. Yeah. Why does it take like a tragedy mm-hmm. to to have that dynamic? Right. right. Yeah, hmm. agreed. Yeah, kind of uh, going off of that, mm-hmm. he talks about um, sort of waking up uh, stressed out and in the everydayness. Mm-hmm. So he says um, he woke up and uh, in the grip of everydayness. Everydayness is the enemy. No search is possible. Perhaps there was a time when everydayness was not too strong and one could break its grip by brute strength. Now nothing breaks it but disaster. Only once in my life was the grip of everydayness broken, when I lay bleeding in a ditch. In a sudden rage, and as if I had been seized by a fit, I roll over and fall in a heap on the floor, and lie shivering on the boards, worse off than the most, than the miserablest muskrat in the swamp. Nevertheless, I vow, I'm a son of a bitch if I'll be defeated by the everydayness. Yeah, I like that one too, I had that noted. So like, getting shot... Uh, in the war, and mm-hmm. it was kind of like a big catalyst for him. Oh, absolutely. You know, doing the whole search. Because he gets a, he gets, oh, excuse me. He gets in a car accident when he's driving with his secretary, mm-hmm. 
And like he kind of mentions like, oh, like this is the closest I've been to when I was in a ditch in the Orient or something like that. You know. Yeah, he talks about how even uh, how could an accident be considered good luck because it's a way of winning out over the malaise. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kate goes on another rant. I guess I do like Kate. Because <laughs> yeah. she's talking about... Because, she, she, yeah, apparently she talked to um, Binks a lot about going to see uh, her therapist, Merle. She's just rehashing her therapist session to Binks. She says, Do you know what I did? After a minute or so, he asked me, What comes to mind? I sat up and rubbed my eyes, and then it dawned on me. But I couldn't believe it. It was too simple. My God, can a person live 25 years, a life of crucifixion, through a misunderstanding? Yes, I stood up. I discovered that a person does not have to be this or be that or be anything, not even oneself. One is free. But even if Merle knew this and told me, there is no way in the world I could have taken his advice. How strange to think that you cannot pass along this, the discovery. So again, Merle said, what comes to mind? I got up and told him goodbye. <laughs> but yeah, but like that little bit about being free, that's the core of ex existentialism. Mm -hmm. um, is you, Everyone is free to do whatever they want in life and choose the meaning that they are going to have for themselves. Didn't they call it something like you, you are condemned to be free? Yeah, yeah. Because we can, we sort of think of freedom as this like um, inherently positive thing, but like it's a little intimidating, right? And that's why so many people sort of fall back on tradition, oh, religion, uh, you know, societal. Because structures. they refuse to, oh, not refuse. They just choose not to view their life as solely their own choices, which it ultimately is. You know, I like, you know. I have a friend that lives in Ohio and is a teacher and has put years towards retirement to be a teacher. So in his mind, he does not have the freedom to move out of Ohio because he will lose that retirement, those re years towards retirement. But really, he does have the freedom to move. He is just choosing that those retirement credits, years towards retirement, are too valuable to him for, to move out of Ohio. But he made the choice. Correct. Yeah. Right? And that's just it. That's that's what it's all about is that you can choose. You, you can have whatever reason you want to make your choice. But it is your choice. And you are free to make whatever you want. I guess the counter argument is that a lot of people are in pretty bad situations though. And it's True. like, I didn't choose this to suffer these things. But then that's when it comes to like suicide that you always have that option, mm. as dark as it is. Right, right. It's like, well, if you don't like it, I mean, like, that's really harsh. I, w yes. I would never say that. Oh, right, like, right, right, right. Yeah. But that's that's the thought experiment in existentialism, is that, yes, if you, are, if you have suffering and it is unbearable, there is potentially a way out. But I think that's what makes the myth of Sisyphus so great, is that, you know, Albert Camus goes into all this thing about how your burden is your meaning. Well, you chose to you choose to continue living and to be right. alive, right? So it's sort of like an empowering philosophy, yeah. I think, yeah. in that Absolutely. regard. Absolutely, Absolutely. Yeah, I think I just have one more quote. Okay, um, I think I might have one more too. I don't know. Okay, so this is um, kind of at the end of the ants' rant. Okay, that uh, part of it was a little too much, but <laughs> I think she was just she had this special bond with him, you know. Mm -hmm intellectual connection or something and then she's just disappointed that maybe he took advantage of Kate in her mental state and kind of uh, you know getting close to her mm -hmm. so she says to him I did my best for you son I gave you all I had more than anything I wanted to pass on to you the one heritage of the men of our family a certain quality of spirit a gaiety a sense of duty a nobility worn lightly a sweetness a gentleness with women the only good things the South ever had, and the only things that really matter in this life. Ah, well, still you can tell me one thing. I know you're not a bad boy. I wish you were. But how did it happen that none of this ever meant anything to you? Clearly it did not. Would you please tell me? I'm genuinely curious. Because hmm. she's saying, like, it's not like he's good or bad or does these 
uh, black and white decisions, but he's just sort of drifting along without clinging to uh, a coherent set of actions in her mind, it looks like. It's like he checked out, and she's talking about these like Southern values and uh, ideals that he's not living up to, Sure. and her disappointment in that. Did you like the aunt? Um, I just like the her challenging his his lifestyle. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I I mean that's okay. I did not like the aunt. I felt like she was representative of like the world forcing you know putting pressure on young adults to find their path and to to stop lollygagging, stop messing around, and just you know find your purpose but I don't know if that's a bad thing like I can think about in my early 20s just like not having being on a path and messing around and that's not a very productive like time in my life Uh, all right all right right. yeah I guess you're right that that sometimes people or everyone needs a little push or guidance in their life but I don't feel like Binks needed that in this book I felt like he was trying to sort things out for himself and that yeah he was a little he's too much in his head that he doesn't acknowledge that he doesn't realize by taking Kate away and not telling anybody that he's you know stressing other people out like he he could be better yes but I don't feel like pressuring him because he doesn't he ultimately in this book go to med school or something yeah that, well that's how it ends up is he yeah. settles down gets married goes to, goes to med school so I feel like her advice came through on some level that well, he yeah, made but, something alright so okay is that Binks choosing that life or just kind of being like well if this is what they want me to do well that's that's something that's a little up in the air it's like open to interpretation I think okay okay I buy that I bet I mean I kind of I mean I'm one that that I don't really like critics and other people who are not the author reading into you know literature that's what we do I know I mean not like we read it and we take it at face value and then we interpret the story from our own perspective. We don't assume we know what the author was intending. Correct. We don't assume that we know what the author's intent was. Yeah. Right. So did Binks finally find his path on his own and wanted to go to med school, med school and Mary Kate and all that stuff? Or did he just find the cave and give in to the societal and his aunt's pressures to do that? You know... We don't know because I don't think Walker... I, mean, I didn't Google it that much, so I don't know if Walker Percy actually said one or the other, but it doesn't ultimately matter, does it? I mean, it could be a little bit of both. Okay. I feel like he found the balance between his individual search and society's expectations. Mm-hmm. You can make that argument. Okay. Yeah. Here's one um, Here's one part of the book I, th- I liked. Um, kind of totally unrelated. It's a, because throughout this whole book, it's about... Binks, his search, dealing with his aunt, going out with his secretary, seeing his mom, and then hanging out with Kate, and eventually that. But then he talks about, because his brother died, right? Oh, he, he talks about, when he goes to Chicago, he remembers a time when he visited Chicago with his dad. So this is the part I liked. Some years later, after Scott's death, we came, my father and I, to the Field Museum, a long, dismal, peri-style dwindling away into the howling, howling distance, and inside stood before a tableau of Stone Age man. Father, mother, and child crouched around an artificial ember in postures of minatory quiet, until, feeling my father's eye upon me, I turned and saw what he required of me. Very special father and son we were that summer. He's staking his everything this time on a perfect comradeship. And I, seeing in his eyes the terrible request requiring from me his very life, I, through a child's cool perversity or some atavistic recoil from an intimacy too intimate, turned him down, turned away, refused him what I knew I could not give. Hmm. I found that... that it came at towards the end of the book, but I found it the most the most emotional he talks about his relationship with his father. And I think because his aunt is like his father's sister or 
aunt or something like that because I think she's a great aunt or something. But anyway, she talks about the men of his family. And, you know, I don't know. I just found that very opening to his relationship that maybe, you know, his brother Scott dies. His dad is looking for a more intimate relationship with Binks. Binks in his child perversion or atavistic whatever, you know, he, what he said was, you know, he just didn't return it. He knew he couldn't give it. And then ultimately, yeah, his dad dies, and so he never could. Yeah, that kind of comes full circle with his mom, how his mom can't really have those intimate moments with him. Mm-hmm. Um, probably because of his brother and his dad dying, that she's just kind of been through a lot and tries to keep things kind of light. But it seems like he's he tries to make an effort to have intimate moments with her later on. Right, true. So, so maybe he is trying to um, make up for missed opportunities of the past which is like deep stuff yeah man <laughs> so alright so rating time what you give it 3 out of 5 I, I agree 3 out of 5 I mean we gotta write it down first so I know you're not copying no me. really <laughs> why, 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 do, why would I copy I'm you I'm just Tim? saying if anything I'd be more inclined to pick a different I always rating. say 3 out of 5 then you say 3 out of 5 well, <laughs> I well, think we all just say 3 out of 5 a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah I know well I think this is a perfectly appropriate three out of five because on story and writing alone probably would have given it a two but I mean I like his explanations about Binks's thought process and Kate's thought process and how they're trying to search through life and and so yeah so I think three is appropriate yeah I mean like I said there were times reading it that it dragged on but Mm -hmm. stepping back I can appreciate it more um it had some nice passages, like those quotes we oh, read, yeah, yeah, yeah. and some good characters, but mm-hmm. yeah, I just feel like it's a three out of five. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. Have we given him anything about that? I guess Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was, was four, four out of five. Yeah, yeah. Got to read I know. better books, I guess. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think... We're too critical, maybe. No, I don't think we're too critical. I think, I think three is an appropriate benchmark, like a solid book. Like, I gave Blood Meridian two... I was thinking about that. Maybe I should have just given it a one. Oh dang! Because like, I mean, I I, I do agree. We need to maybe have a little more, um, I don't know, difference in our ratings. We well, shouldn't force it. You mean like between each other? No, 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 not between each other. Just based on, I mean, like I like variability. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm saving my fives for bo- books I absolutely love. Like, yeah, because you can't get higher than that. So like. I'm not going to give, you know, every book a five. And, and, I, and I don't think we should look at it like any sort of, I don't know, other scale. Just just do what we feel is right for us. Right. And I think three out of five is appropriate rating for this book. We just, the only rule is no 3.5 stars. Oh, God. Because then it's a seven out of ten, which I was is thinking, on the fence. I, all right, I was thinking about that, though, Tim. <laughs> 2.5 out of 5 is not even really halfway, if you think about That's it. That's a 5 out of 10. But think about this. We're never going to give a 0, right? Are we going to give a 0? Probably not. No. Zero point so five. there is no 0. So our options are 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5. And so there's only 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. There's 5 options, right? So 3 is exactly in the middle of a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 scale. <laughs> You're you get what I'm saying? This. When you're multiplying it by two, I know, yeah. I know, I know. But anyway. Um, I just translated into the out of ten scale. Yes, I know. Yeah. I know. But we're doing a five scale. Well, <laughs> what, what did I give a 2.5 the last book? Blink, yeah. Which my sister, the oh. social worker, has some beefs with you, Tim. Oh, good. Yeah, because like the, the Gottman guy who yeah. does the med- marriage counseling right. is like world renowned so he's not just some random study I liked the Gottman yeah. passages but what I'm saying is that maybe Malcolm Gladwell picks some better studies than what you give him credit for Fred Durst <laughs> the, the music all right, all right, expert all right. I retract the statement Fred, Fred Durst okay. all right. but anyway alright next book another fiction uh, Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke that's my pick I'm picking a science fiction classic. I mean, well, Arthur C. Clarke is a classic, you know, science fiction author. I just picked 
a random one of his. I didn't want to do 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I just picked Rendezvous it's with Rama. It's supposed to be good. I th- yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it. Is it like yeah. a series? I feel like they made a sequel to it that wasn't that good. Really? Like it's like a two-book series. I don't know. I don't we'll know. just read the first one. Yeah, just the first one. And I, I don't think it's a series. See how we like it. I don't think it's a series, but we'll see. There's a couple books. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's good to read some sci-fi. Yes. Mix it up from this yes. existential BS. <laughs> oh, we'll get back in the heavier shit yeah. later. Yeah, oh, yeah, your next book's kind of intense, well, I think. Yeah, and so is yours. What is my next one? Uh, to the Lighthouse, Virginia. Woman. Oh yeah, man. Spoiler man. alert. Let's read a happier book. Sometime. Yeah. <laughs> we got. We, we, talk about we have some. Scenarios. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. We have some happier books on the horizon. But for our listeners out there, if you want to go to our website, you can comment on our on these books and give recommendations for what we should read next too. If you want to see happier stuff. What's our website, Brian? twoguysonebook.com Tim wow great donate domain name I think so can't too. believe we got that <laughs> okay until next time yes. keep reading <laughs> do we have a tagline we do now <laughs> read on All right. okay